0: Praise be to God. Well, today we are beginning a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. Why Exodus? It's the second book of the Bible. Why not start with the first? Well, we could. But if we want to understand a picture of who God is, one of the greatest pictures we could look at in the Old Testament is the book of Exodus. Why Exodus? Uh, Because in this book, we hear for the first time God's personal name. In this book, we see for the first time how he reveals himself to his people, and he reveals himself by being the God who redeems them from bondage. When God wants to reveal himself to his people, he wants to give them this picture for them. The God I'm calling you to serve, God says, is the God who's redeeming you. That's why we're looking at the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is a book of departure. It's a book of being set free. It's a book with many special effects, like the burning bush the plagues, and of course, the crossing of the Red Sea. All of that makes the book of Exodus exciting for the children. And yet, all of those special effects happen in the first half of the book. There's a second part to the story of Exodus, and it's just as important as the first. Because you see, the book of Exodus the point of Exodus was not simply to be liberated from Egypt, but they were liberated in order to serve God. Hence, the title of this series that we'll be looking at for the next few weeks is Exodus from Slavery to Service. So I invite you this morning to begin a journey uh, which will unpack the message of Exodus And this morning, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And really, the text for the sermon is from chapter 1 to chapter 40. Now, if we were to read this, uh, see, verse by verse, it would take us about two and a half hours. And then start the sermon. We will not do that this morning. But I encourage you. I encourage you strongly to take, some ch- take a chance the next few weeks as we're in this ser- series, read through the book of Exodus. And I encourage you, try to read through it in one sitting. It takes about two and a half hours. Put some time aside when, when you have on a, on a weekend or an evening night uh, with a cup of tea or coffee. Just read through the book of Exodus as if it's a story. Don't read it as if it's part of the Bible. Just read it as it's part of the story. I encourage you to do that. But today, this morning, for our sermon, we'll be reading from chapter 5, verse 22, to to chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 22. The word of the Lord speaks to us in the following way. Moses returned to the Lord and said, O lord why have you brought trouble upon this people is this why you sent me ever since i went to pharaoh to speak in your name he has brought trouble upon this people and you have not rescued your people at all then the lord said to moses now you will see what i will do to pharaoh Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from, the, from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to to the Israelites. But they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites would not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? Amen. Well, Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we pray this morning that as we begin looking at the story of Exodus, we would see the great power of your redemption and the great purposes you have with your people. Give us open hearts to see our story in light of theirs. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, in order to read and understand Exodus, we have to begin with the book of Genesis and specifically Genesis 15, the passage we read earlier in the service. In Genesis 15, chapter, chapter 15, verses 18, we read that on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land. In one sense, Genesis gives us a picture of God who made a covenant with Abraham. And now in Exodus, we see God beginning to fulfill that promise. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that the Israelites were enslaved because of their sin. Not to Egypt. There's later in the Bible to Babylon and Assyria, but not in Egypt. God simply allowed Israel to live in Egypt and to flourish and grow under Joseph's leadership. Yet after Joseph's death, with the passing of time and with a new Pharaoh that came to the throne, the conditions of the Hebrew people became worse and worse until literally they have been enslaved. And Exodus picks up the story at this point where their enslavement became cruel and God decided to get them out. Hence the title of the book, Exodus. Exodus means departure, getting out. And yet, as we will see, Exodus is not just about getting out, but also about God moving in with his people. Our aim today is to get an overview of the entire book. In the next few weeks, we'll take different segments of this book and we'll look more carefully. But today, we just want to look and have a bird's eye perspective uh, of this book, of the second book of the Old Testament. Please keep your Bibles open, and please put your seatbelts on. We'll be doing three things today. First, uh, we'll just recount the story. We'll go through the entire story again. Then we will explain the story. We'll explain some of the major themes of the story. And then thirdly, we will look at the significance of the book of Exodus for us Christians today. Why should we Christians be interested in reading the book of Exodus and studying it and knowing it? So let's recount the story of Exodus. If you were to look at the entire story of the entire book, you could really find four acts, four parts in this story. The God who saves, and by the way, let me avert your attention. If you look in your, uh, in your pews, there's something that says Exodus from slavery to service. You see a printout of the outline that I'll be going through today and through the rest of the sermon series. Um, it should be somewhere in the chair in front of you or on the seat right next to you. But the, We could look at four major acts. The God who saves in chapters 1 through 15. Then the God who accompanies the people from chapter 16 through 18. Then the God who creates a covenant, chapters 19 through 24. And then the final part of the book, the God who wants to live with his people, chapter 25 through 40 let's look at how these unfold, how the story unfolds. If you were to look at chapters one to four, they give us a picture of Moses' birth and his calling. Actually, the book begins with a picture of Israel's increasing oppression. Because of their rapid growth, all the Hebrew male babies were doomed to be killed immediately after birth. Against this background, we see how God orchestrates the protection of Moses' life. His parents placed him on a on the Nile river and miraculously Pharaoh's daughter found him and adopted him. The very daughter of the king who decreed Moses's death and the death of other children like Moses, the very daughter of this king is now protecting his life and she's paying for the services to bring up this boy. And she's the one who gives a name to this boy, and she names him Moses, which means "escaped from water. Now, his name looks not only backward to his birth and the way he was rescued from water, but I think in God's providence and irony, it also looks forward to the mission of this baby who will rescue the people of Israel by going through water. God's irony, God is the one who, who orchestrates all that. God is sovereign, and sometimes he's, he's got a sense of humor. But we know the rest of the story. When Moses reaches adulthood, he has to flee Egypt because he became a murderer. He killed someone, and he flees away so that he can save his life. And After another 40 years living far away from Egypt, God called Moses, around the age of 80, God called him back to bring Israel out from bondage. Now, all this happened in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Then from chapter 5 to 11, we see Moses before Pharaoh pleading to let Israel go. And as expected, Pharaoh is not easily sold on this idea. It's not a win-win situation for him. And as the text shows us, and as we will unpack next week, it was God who determined that Pharaoh would not listen in order that God would display his power and judgment against Egypt. So from chapters 5 to 11, we see the ten plagues that God sent against Egypt as a way to show Pharaoh who God is. Then in chapters 12 to 15, we see the actual departure. The actual exodus, uh, it happens immediately after sacrificing a lamb whose blood was shed on the doorposts of every Jewish home in order to protect the lives of those, of those families, of those souls inside that home. Now, since the doorposts of the Egyptian families were not sprinkled with the blood of this lamb, every firstborn male from Pharaoh's Household to the last of Egypt's servants, every firstborn male was to be killed. And this final plague was so crushing that Pharaoh not only allowed the Israelites to go, Pharaoh ordered that they would go out. Just as God had told Moses that Pharaoh will drive out the people from his land. Then, of course, a few days later, God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh decides, no, we, what have we done? We made a mistake. Let's go get him back. So they go out to pursue the Israelites to bring him back to Egypt. But we know the story. At this point, this, the tension is incredibly high because Israel is on one side next to a sea and on the other side, the Egyptians are coming behind them and catching up to them and actually right next to them so that God has to intervene to put a, a cloud. The cloud is no longer before the nation. The cloud now goes behind them to protect them from the Egyptians. And It is one of the most incredible points in the story of Exodus when God determines and asks Moses to do something incredible. Now before Moses does it, the people the people become angry. The people become very upset. Why has Moses brought him out of Egypt? They start grumbling against Moses and against God. But God asks Moses to do that, which is probably the greatest the greatest effect in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. Not only is Moses able to lead the nation of Israel through the sea as if they are on dry, on dry land, But as soon as they are through, the Egyptians come and pursue them and the waters come back just in time to drown the entire army of Egypt. And this is God's display of power to redeem his people, not only to save them, but to destroy their enemies. Then we get to chapter 15. In the story where Moses, we see a, a, a hymn, a praise, be, uh, written by Moses and Miriam to re- praise God for his power of redemption. Then in chapter 16 through 18, we see the journey from the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And we, le- we learn that this, despite the great power that God displayed to redeem Israel, the people start complaining for lack of water, lack of bread, lack of meat, yet God graciously provides for every one of their needs and he accompanies them in the journey. And then in chapter 19, they finally arrive at Mount Sinai. Look at, look with me to chapter 19, verse one. We are told, and there's some, there's some time clues and I want you to, to notice this time clue. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. In other words, it took them about three months from the Red Sea to arrive to Mount Sinai. Now, let me pause for for a moment. Because when we get to chapter 19, the author stops the timeline of, of the story. Because everything that happens from this point on in the book of Exodus happens here at Mount Sinai. Actually, everything that happens in the book of Leviticus, which is the next book, happens here at Mount Sinai. Actually, a step further, everything that happens in the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers happens here at Mount Sinai. So Exodus 19, chapter, one, of chapter 19, verse 1, the Israelites got to Sinai, and I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Numbers, chapter 10, verse 11. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. We are told that on the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the testimony. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai. This is the first time we're told that the Israelites picked up and moved on. So everything that happens between Exodus 19 and Numbers 10 happens at Sinai almost two years. What happened at Sinai? Why is Sinai such an important stop? Well, chapters 19 through 24 of Exodus tell us that God reveals his intentions to make Israel his treasured possession and to make him his holy nation. God tells him in chapter 19, if you turn back to chapter 19, verse four through six, God tells him, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And then God in chapter 20 reveals his 10 commandments and a few other initial rules for how Israel should live socially. And then we'll move to chapter 24. In chapter 24, God lays out the covenant he wanted to make with Israel. And after Israel heard the stipulations of the covenant, or let me speak some modern language, after Israel heard the constitution that God wrote for them. After Israel wrote the contract. The relationship that God was to establish between himself and this people. After they've heard it, look at verse 7 in chapter 24. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, We will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people. And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now notice how the covenant, how the contract is signed. It's not with pens and ink. It's not with Montblancs. It's with blood. The way the covenant is established between Moses and his people is through a blood of an innocent animal, and this blood is now sprinkled on the people. At the end of chapter 24, once the constitution is made, God calls Moses up the mountain and gives him instructions on how to build a tabernacle, including how to fundraise for it. Now, oh, I love this part. This is where you, we Baptists feel very, very good. We love buildings and we love building campaigns. Why is a tabernacle the first thing that God asked people to build after they signed the constitution? In other words, why do they have to build a church building? Well, because God's intent was not simply to free Israel so they could be their own nation, but God freed Israel. So they would be his nation so he could be with them. So he could dwell with them and live in their midst. The tabernacle was a symbol of God's dwelling in their midst. And that's how chapter 25 begins. God gives instructions to Moses for building the tabernacle and for preparing the priests to serve this tabernacle. And these instructions are very detailed. Uh, If you have a hard time falling asleep one night, just read through these instructions. And they go from chapter 25 to chapter 31. And if you turn to chapter 31, and I encourage you to do so, verse 18, look at how these instructions or how this part of the instructions ends. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, namely all these instructions, the Lord gave him the two tablets of the testimony, namely the Ten Commandments, The tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And then, immediately after God finishes talking to Moses and giving him instructions how to build a tabernacle and how to prepare the priests and Aaron to lead the, the priestly services in the tabernacle, then we get to chapter 32. And we find out that while Moses was up on the mountain receiving all these instructions, on how to build a tabernacle where God would dwell with his people down below. The people of Israel created a golden calf and began worshiping it and notice what, what they proclaimed, Chapter 32 verse four, he, Aaron took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And they said, and look at what they said. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Can you imagine? To ascribe to an image made by their hands the glory of redemption from Egypt. No wonder God burns with anger against Israel and he wants to destroy the entire nation. He wants to have nothing to do with them. Here's God preparing, giving instructions to Moses how to do the tabernacle. And down below, the people are thinking, all that glory is now ascribed to another God, to other idols, made by human hands. This is the climax of the story. It's not the Red Sea. Chapter 2 is, is the greatest climax of, of, of the book of Exodus. Yet Moses Pleads with God. He is even asking God to take his own name from the book of life and rescue Israel instead. Moses is the great mediator for Israel's sin. And because of his his mediatorial role, God is averting his wrath away. He's not destroying the nation. Although he is destroying 3,000 people, and we will see in a a few weeks later why and how. God not only, this, not only averts his wrath from the nation, but he agrees to continue to go with them. Then at the beginning of chapter 34, after this crisis of the golden calf is, is settled down, after God agrees to move on and, and, and be with his people, God calls Moses up the mountain again to receive a new set of the Ten Commandments. And when he came back, We see from the beginning of chapter 34 all the way to the end of of chapter 40 that the tabernacle, after all, is being built. And until the end of chapter 40, we see how all the instructions God gave to Moses prior to the golden calf are now being fulfilled. And look at chapter 40, verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. And the intent of all this is clearly spelled out in the next verse, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is how the book of Exodus ends. I know you don't need to worry about the animals. They're fun. They remind us of God's creation. But this is how the book of Exodus ends. The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle. God moved in with his people. Mission accomplished. This is a quick recounting of the story of Exodus. The God who saved his people, the God who accompanied his people, the God who made a covenant with his people and the God who moved in with his people. But let's see what can we understand from the story. Let's move on to the second part of, of our, of our time together and explain the story what are the themes? What are the highlights? There's a number of themes that run through this book. We will not be able to cover them all, but I'd like to share with you at least some of the major themes. First of all, redemption is an act of God's grace. Redemption is an act of God's grace. God did not look to save Israel because Israel obeyed God. God did not redeem Israel out of Egypt after God gave them his laws. God first redeemed them from Egypt and then gave them his laws. It's a simple act, but very crucial for us to let that sink in our minds. Redemption in the old Testament, even in the, in, for the people of Israel was an act of grace. The law followed afterwards. Now, why is this important for us to realize? Because even in the old Testament, redemption was not based on works. But on grace. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may think that Israel's redemption uh, in the Old Testament was based on what they did. Because if you've been a Christian for a while and you've been reading through the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is full of laws. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. And it's very easy for us to get the impression that salvation in the Old Testament was based on works. But the story of Exodus tells us that is not correct. God redeemed his people from the very beginning, not because Israel was a powerful nation, not because Israel was faithful to God's promises, not because, because Israel was willing to listen to God. If anything, in the passage we read today, we're reminded that the Israelites were hard to listen. They had a hard time. Israel was redeemed by God because of his grace and because of the covenant and the promises God made with Abraham. In the passage we read today, in in, in Exodus 6, God tells Moses, I'm redeeming Israel because of the promises and the covenant I made with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now what this means for us, dear brothers and sisters, is that it ought to build in us humility. This ought to put away from us any tendency of boasting or confidence in ourselves for our salvation. Redemption, even in the Old Testament, was an act of God's grace. I wonder, my dear friend, how often in your daily life you approach God as if He owes you something good, as if God is indebted to you because you've tried to be good. I hear people occasionally say, how could God do this to me? I've tried to do all this good. Tried to live like him. How could he do this to me? And often these statements are claimed by Christians. What I want us to realize dear brothers and sisters is that such statements are incompatible with God's redemption. God redeemed his people prior to his people obeying him. At the very core of our redemption, we have to realize that our redemption was initiated prior to us doing anything. So we are forever indebted to God. That's the point of redemption. It's an act of grace. But second, a second theme that runs through the book of Exodus is that God doesn't rescue Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in order to make them autonomous individuals or to make them an autonomous nation. God rescued Israel from being slaves to Pharaoh in order to make them servants of God. They have been freed from bondage to Egypt and brought to serve God. Alec Matir, one of the uh, well-known British theologians of the Old Testament pointed out how the book of Exodus begins with a picture of the people of Israel building bricks for Pharaoh. And it ends with the people of Israel building a tabernacle for God. We have to let that image sink in from slavery, from being enslaved to build bricks and build buildings for Pharaoh. Now they're called, they have been redeemed in order to serve God. Freedom is the second major theme of the book of Exodus, but the definition of freedom in the book of Exodus is serve God without hindrances. Freedom in the book of Exodus means to serve God without hindrances. This ex- includes external hindrances like Egypt, but also it includes internal hindrances like idolatry. The definition of freedom we see in Exodus is not, you have been freed, you can do whatever you want. No, instead, you have been freed You're now able to serve God as he determines. I wonder, my dear friend, if this is our definition of Christian freedom or freedom we have in Christ. Now, for us who live in the United States, the DNA of our nation is based on an independence we acquired from other nations, uh, which a few centuries ago were the empires of the world. But we have received our independence. We have gained our independence from them. And I praise God for this freedom. But when we use this terminology of freedom for the spiritual realm, spiritual freedom is not independence, but service rendered to God without hindrances, external or internal. That's why in the New Testament, we see the apostle Paul and Peter describe themselves as bond servants of the living God. They have been freed and yet they describe themselves as servants of the living God. Why? Because freedom, Christian freedom, freedom in Christ means you're now able to serve God as he calls and as he determines. Do you have this notion of spiritual freedom? The book of Exodus has this major theme running through it. And thirdly, there's a third theme that runs through the book. The book of Exodus tells us that to be liberated from Egypt does not mean automatic entrance into the promised land. Actually to be liberated from Egypt does not even mean automatic presence of God in the midst of the camp. The happy ending of the story of Exodus is not the crossing of the Red Sea, which happened in the first half of the book. The happy ending of the of the book of Exodus is not getting out. But remember chapter 40? It's about God moving in. Yes, the Passover lamb played a critical role in protecting Israel from death. From the, but in a similar way, in a worse way, the golden calf, another animal, played a severe role in actually severing God's plans to be with his people. God redeemed Israel through the blood of the lamb. But the golden calf, the idolatry of the golden calf severed God's plans to be with his people. And the climax and the happy ending of the book of Exodus is that, after all, God is able to dwell with his people. That's the happy ending of the book of Exodus. These are the themes that are running in this book. Now, what, what is the significance for us as Christians? Why should we Christians read this book? Why should we care for it? Why should we study it? Let me give you two reasons, briefly. First, when we get to the New Testament, we see the life and ministry of Jesus presented to us in the language and imagery that recounts the Exodus. Matthew 2, 15, we're told that out of Egypt I have called my son. Now initially, in the Old Testament, that referred to Israel. But Matthew uses this phrase, And and references it now to the birth of Jesus, and when Jesus was brought back from Egypt. In the the Gospel of John, the life of Jesus is, is presented in categories that are reminiscent of the Exodus. Christ, in the Gospel of John, is presented as the manna, as the bread of life, as the living water. In the Gospel of John, Jesus presents himself as the I am, which is the name God presented himself for the first time in the book of Exodus to Moses. And interestingly, it's not coincidental that the signs, the first sign that Jesus makes and the last sign that Jesus makes in his ministry in the Gospel of John, are an echo to the signs that God did in Exodus, in the 10 plagues. T.D. T. Alexander claims about the book of Exodus and about the signs uh, of the ten plagues and the signs of Jesus, that the water into blood and the death of the firstborn in Exodus are replaced in, in John's gospel with signs of hope. Water into wine and the raising from the dead, death of the firstborn. In the Gospel of John, Jesus comes and unfolds and takes back and reverses the plagues of Egypt. We have to understand the ministry of Jesus as the new exodus. And Of course, in the Gospel of Luke, something probably most powerful that I find is in chapter 9, we have the story of Jesus' transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And in Luke 9, I think verse 23, they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now that clearly was referring to the cross. And the English version uses the word they spoke to him about his departure. But the Greek language, the Greek word there is exodus. They spoke to him about His exodus. In other words, in the cross of Jesus, He is reenacting the exodus because He is now the Passover Lamb. And it is in His cross that we experience the true getting out. The true redemption, the true freedom from sin and bondage in order that we may serve the living God. You see, the book of Exodus is absolutely crucial for our Christian faith. Because our salvation is described in terms of the Exodus. Our redemption took place on the cross and we experience it in our lives as we repent of our sins and trust in Christ for our salvation. My dear friend, have you experienced this redemption? Have you put your trust in Christ and repented of your sins? If not, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But that's why for us as Christians, Exodus is crucial because it represents Christ and his work, his life, and his death on the cross. But there's a second reason. Exodus is important for us as Christians because the Exodus language is, not, is applied in the New Testament not only to Christ but also to the church. In 1 Peter, the apostle describes the church as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And this language is taken verbatim out of Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, which we read. We, the church, are the community of the new Exodus because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Apostle Paul talks about Jesus as our Passover. There's only one place in all of the New Testament where Jesus is presented as our Passover, and that's In first Corinthians chapter five, the the context of that description is given in Paul's talk about church discipline. Paul rebukes the church for not addressing the sin that was going on in their community. And he encourages, he, he, he asks the church to clean out the sin in their midst because to live as the community of the new exodus it means that we live out our repentance daily by pursuing God's holiness and righteousness in our lives and in our community. And then there's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I encourage you to, to open 1 Corinthians to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. Paul gives warnings to the church by using Exodus language again. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. This is the recounting of the story of Exodus. And you can read on for a few verses, but move on to verse 5. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage, indulge in pagan rivalry. We should not commit sexual immorality and some, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things, namely those in Exodus, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. You see, for Paul, the story of Exodus has ramifications from now, for for us now, not only because Christ is our Passover, but because we are the generation of the new exodus. We too are called to live holy lives. If you're a Christian this morning, let me ask you, are you pursuing holiness individually? As a congregation, allow me to ask us as a congregation, are we pursuing holiness as a congregation? Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, it is in vain to try to conform to God's laws prying to experiencing His salvation. Some people try to do that. It will do you no good. Don't even try. You cannot follow God's rules and God's laws if you're not saved, if you're not redeemed. Once we are redeemed, God calls us to do so. I hope and pray that as we look this morning at the story of Exodus, we see a picture of God's grace in redemption. He redeemed his people because of his grace, because of his covenant. We also saw a picture of God's purpose with his people, namely to liberate us from bondage so we can serve him as he dwells with us in holiness and glory. Dear friends, Exodus is about a journey from slavery to service. We too are on that journey. The journey is not over. We have not reached our destination. Let us pray. Father, we thank you because in Christ Jesus, you set us free from sin and from the guilt of our rebellion, from our bondage. We thank you that Christ lived a perfect life of obedience to you and we trust in him for our salvation and for our sanctification. Lord Jesus, I hope and pray that you enable us as we study this book of Exodus that we see Christ through it and that we see ourselves through this story. In the name of Jesus, I pray for his glory and honor. Let's continue to worship the Lord in a moment of silence. And you know how the Lord is speaking to you today and uh, let him speak to you and let your heart and soul respond to him. Lord, and as we focus on the words, what it means to worship the Lamb of God.